Today's episode of Behind the Beverage is brought to you by BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. By combining your restaurant's inventory and ordering data with beautifully designed, easy-to-use software, BevSpot can help you run a more efficient, more profitable business. Check them out today at BevSpot.com and schedule a consultation with one of their specialists to see how BevSpot can help you. That's BevSpot.com, B-E-V-S-P-O-T.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to our first episode of Behind the Beverage. I'm your host, Trevor Bernacci, and every other week we're going to be presenting you with the histories and backstories of just about everything in the world of spirits, wine, beer, and beyond. This week, just in time for summer, we're taking a journey down the neck of a wine bottle and into the realm of rosé. It's pretty, it's pink, and it's polarizing. I've got a fresh glass by my side, so that means it's time to go Behind the Beverage! Alright, 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 let's get down to it with Rosé. So, Rosé is one of the most polarizing beverages out there I've found over the years, and it really makes you fall into one of three camps. You either love it, you hate it, or you absolutely love to hate it. And I'm sure a lot of you out there fall into that latter category. So, how did we get here? You know, what is the deal with Rosé? Why does it seem to be just such a huge fad over the last, you know, five to ten years? Well, actually, it's been a lot longer than that. Rosé's been around for thousands and thousands of years. It's really unclear, though, when the first wine was actually labeled as a rosé, but according to some studies out there, it might actually be the oldest type of wine on the planet. And that's probably because rosé is one of the most straightforward styles of wine to make uh, through the skin contact method of crushing grapes. Now, in the ancient times, the people making these wines wouldn't have had any real technology to their advantage, so you're right, when I say crush... They're crushing those things with their feet. They get them in big stone vats, big wooden vats, crush all those grapes, and then the juice runoff is what they would use to ferment to make the wine. Now, the earliest wines on record were made by simply blending white and red grapes together and then watering down the final product to give it a really light red hue. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who was making this beautiful wine, and why the hell were they watering it down? Well, who else but the founding fathers of wine production, the Greeks? In ancient Greece, it was widely believed that watering down the finished wine was more civilized, and only murderers, thieves, and barbarians consumed pure wine, which I'm not sure what that says about me, considering I had a half a bottle last night myself, or about society in general today. Now, a Spartan king actually had been driven to the point of insanity, even claimed that it was drinking the pure wine that ultimately led to his fall from grace. Well, even after that uplifting story in that time period, rosé remained the beverage of choice for many centuries beyond that. In fact, sometime during the 6th century BCE, the Phocians from Greece, which is a small region in the center of what was uh, ancient Greece, they took grapevines over the Mediterranean Sea and settled into what is now modern-day Marseille, France. Once they were there, these Phocians continued to make the wine in the same way, and it really started picking up popularity around that region. 
So by the time the Romans found their way to Provence many years later and kind of took everything over, they had already heard about the, the rosés of the Greeks, and they started to use their vast connected trade networks and roads to make these wines even more popular. Now, when the Romans came over, they actually introduced red wine grapes to the region uh, as a you know sole form of wine, giving birth to these beautiful reds of Bandol and Provence that we love today. But rosé really remained the, uh, the king of wines in that region. Now, even to this day, the south of France is, you know, considered to be the world's epicenter of rosé. Now, in the following centuries, you know, after the Romans started uh, kind of planting their red grapes, red and white wine from the area really started gaining in popularity too, but those rosés, the fame of those never dwindled. They were always the number one. And then once the French, you know, many centuries later, started flocking to the south of France for their vacations in the 19th century, Rosé started to become that symbol of glamour, leisure, and summertime that we all know today. Because after spending long days playing batonque, which is essentially French bocce, and swimming in the sun in the Mediterranean, they would relax with a glass or two or three or a bottle of chilled rosé before calling it a night. Yeah, it's true, the world was pretty much looking through rosé-colored glasses right up until around the end of World War II. So close to the end of the war... The public image of rosé started to unravel at the seams with the creation of two Portuguese wines called Matus and Lancers. So Matus was created by a man named Fernando Van Zellerguedes in 1943, and right around the same time that label was taking off, an American named Henry Behar was traveling through Portugal himself. Now, while visiting the now legendary property of J.M. da Fonseca, Behar tasted a wine called Fesca, which translates to English as spark from the old Portuguese. Well, old Hank fell in love with this new refreshing wine, and he really wanted to share it with the whole world. So Behar started importing this wine back to the States, but he was worried that the name Fesca was too close to fiasco for the ever open-minded American wine market. And because of this, Behar renamed the wine Lancers, and he named it after his favorite painting by the famous artist Velázquez called Las Lanzas, or, you know, the Lancers in English, obviously. Now, both Matus and Lancers were slightly sweet pink wines, and once they hit the market, they were massive overnight successes. But just like any other fad, you know, people eventually began turning their noses up at the quality of these wines. So since these wines were essentially novelty products, they made the public think that all pink wine was cheap, sweet, and made in huge, massive bulk quantities, which is, you know, a theory that still persists for a lot of people today. And they even coined the morning after terms for these wines of Lancer's poisoning and the Matus hangover, since the amount of residual sugar in the wine would absolutely destroy you the next day if you'd had too much to drink. I'm already having flashbacks to terrible hangovers just thinking about that. Now, just when the world was really turning its back on these types of rosés, along came White Zinfandel in 1975, also known as the Billion Dollar Accident. That's right, White Zinfandel was never supposed to actually exist. So Sutter Holmes head winemaker at the time, Bob Trinchero, he'd been experimenting with their beautiful, deep, rich Zin grapes, and he actually had a batch that got stuck in fermentation, which just really means the residual sugars hadn't all been converted into alcohol by the yeast, which gave the wine a really sweet profile, much sweeter than normal, actually. 
Now, once again, this product exploded in the mid to late 70s on the market, and due to the popularity of white Zin in the U.S. market, other American wineries began producing it in the same way, and soon those rosés of the old world, those beautiful Provençal rosés, became a distant memory for a long time. I mean, in 2018 alone, the white Zinfandel market in the U.S. had grown into a $300 million a year venture. $300 million a year just in white Zinfandel vanilla alone, not even the official traditional style rosés. So that is how we got to where we are today with rosé. In the last five to ten years, we've been experiencing an absolute boom in rosé popularity, and not necessarily with white Zinfandel on those blush wines. I'm talking the real deal French Provençal, Italian Rosados, Spanish Rosados, all of that is coming into the States, and American wineries are producing rosé specifically just to sell to the American market. It's a beautiful thing to see, and a beautiful historical wine to see it with. So before we wrap up this episode, I want to go into a little segment called Pro Tips and Fun Facts. So with this, I'm going to provide you with a couple of pro tips as a certified sommelier. I can help you out with certain things and then just some fun random facts about rosé. So first off, pro tip number one, if pairing wine with food gives you anxiety, don't worry, you're definitely in, the, uh, in line with most folks out there. You should probably give rosé a chance. It's really one of the most versatile and universally pairable wines out there. So if you supply rosé for your next dinner party, regardless of what you're cooking, you're going to look like a pro. You're going to look like a sommelier yourself, I promise you. Fun fact number one, professional wrestler Andre the Giant was said to drink about a half a dozen bottles of Matus before getting in the ring for a wrestling match. I, that blows my mind. I can't even imagine even having one bottle of Matus and trying to do anything. That guy was massive, though, so I'm sure he can handle it. Pro tip number two. There's a really common misconception that the paler the rosé, the drier it's going to be. But that is not true. The only thing that makes a rosé darker or lighter is the amount of time it spends on those red wine grape skins. So all grapes juice is going to run clear, whether it's from a white grape or a red grape. So the longer the winemaker lets it sit on those red grape skins, that is how the wine is going to become a darker color. The only thing that's going to affect the sweetness is the grape juice itself. So the deeper the hue, the longer the contact, doesn't necessarily mean it's a drier wine. And then fun fact, number two, I don't know if this is fun, but it is weird. Matus Rosé was among the alcoholic beverages which were actually stockpiled in Saddam Hussein's palaces when he was finally arrested by Allied forces. I don't know what that says about Matus drinkers out there, but apparently the man loved a sweet pink drink. And on that weird note, we've reached the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us for Behind the Beverage. We're going to be coming at you every other week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, keep those glasses full, have a great week, and we'll see you next time for a brand new episode of Behind the Beverage. Behind the Beverage is brought to you exclusively by BevSpot. Visit them today at BevSpot.com to find out how their software can help you run a more efficient, more profitable restaurant. BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. The Behind the Beverage theme song is written and performed by Ila Moana. Check them out anywhere you stream music, Ila Moana at Spotify, Pandora, or iTunes.